I'm Peter Jacoby, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest today is Arthur Fagan, the internationally recognized and appreciated conductor, both operatic and symphonic, who decided a few years ago that teaching should become an important part of his professional future, and who came to Indiana University's Jacobs School uh, to share his talents there. Welcome, Arthur. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. What led you to this faculty decision? Well, it had been part of my overall future plan at some point to to do teaching, and it's just so ha- I do know David Efron already over forty years, actually, because he was the assistant professor to Max Rudolph at Curtis Institute when I was a student there, and he told me that there was an opening and asked if I might consider applying. And I, I thought about it, talked it over with my wife, and we thought it was the right time. Well, it's a distinct difference, isn't it, from what you did before? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's the conducting aspect is not so different because I do concerts and I do operas here, but the teaching aspect is quite different. I had spent two semesters at Eastman a number of years ago, uh, teaching, conducting, and I enjoyed it very much. And throughout my entire operatic career, I've spent a lot of time coaching singers and worked with many, many great singers of the 20th century and felt that I'd like to be able to work with with the young singers here in, at IU. Who are some of the f- famous singers that you did coach? Well, I didn't coach all of them, but when I was 25, I was the second conductor in Holland on a production which was staged by Tito Golby. Oh, I love Tito Golby. And so do I. <laughs> and I got very close to the Golbys, and I would go every summer to their opera workshop in Florence, Italy, where I was sort of an assistant, and I played all of his master classes. At the same time, I was a an assistant conductor at Frankfurt. I was in my early 20s, and we had in our ensemble in Frankfurt, Eva Marton mm-hmm. and Hans Hotter came through to sing Moses and oh. Moses and Aaron, which I worked with him. Wow. I I taught Anja Silja Erwartung at the time, only as an assistant, but actually had the opportunity to conduct her in it at the Deutsche Oper Berlin just five years ago. And then, I, of course, I spent a great deal of time at the Met, and I've, you know, I've conducted people like Fiorenzo Cosotto and Cheryl Milnes and, 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 and so many, and also in Vienna, where I worked with uh, many, ma- many, many famous singers. It's a wide variety. I conducted Marcello Alvarez's debut at the Vienna State Opera. I worked with Furlanetto. I've worked in Chicago. I've conducted Carol Van Ness, who we have mm-hmm. here, and uh, Samuel Ramey, and Dolores Ajik, and, and, and many people. But I've also had the opportunity as an assistant to have worked, for example, with Elizabeth Schwarzkopf when she was in her 80s because I was the musical assistant on her master class in Amsterdam in the early 80s and conducted their final concert. So... It's been a good fortune to have had exposure to some of some of these really great artists of the past. Uh, I interviewed both Gobi and Schwarzkopf many, many years ago. Yeah. And, of course, I saw Gobi so many times in Chicago where he was the greatest favorite for years and years. That's right. Now, actually, as a conductor, you do teaching, don't you? Yes. How do you view the job of the conductor when you're dealing with, with musicians? 
even professional musicians. Uh. I think that my job is basically twofold. One is to make the orchestra, bring the orchestra to the highest possible level. And as an interpreter of of whichever piece I'm doing, and to bring both the interpretation and 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 the orchestral performance, bring it as far along as I can. Is there a difference working with student ensembles and professionals? Absolutely. Talk to us about that, if you would. And they're all different types of professional orchestras. Sure. And there are cultural differences between Italian orchestras and German orchestras and American orchestras. And, for example, I was a, a permanent guest conductor at the Vienna State Opera for five years. So working with the Vienna Philharmonic, most of the time without any orchestra rehearsal because they play most they of their repertoire in the pit... It's a, a little bit like driving a Rolls Royce because you just have to think a phrase, hardly do anything, and they pick it up immediately. You can even think a dark color and kind of feel it in your body, and it transmits itself automatically to an orchestra of that level. I've had that experience with the Staatskapelle in Berlin because I worked a lot at the Staatsoper in Berlin. And that orchestra has become highly sensitized musically because of their constant work with Barenboim. With, uh, for example, with an Italian orchestra, they may not be as disciplined technically as some of you know our good American orchestras, but in terms of phrasing and picking up on what you're communicating emotionally, they pick it up one hundred percent. So it really varies greatly from from orchestra to orchestra and country to country. And the wonderful thing about working with students is that many of them are playing many of these great masterworks for the first time. So they become so enthusiastic and they invest so much into playing that you get a level of involvement that you sometimes don't get from a professional orchestra. And that is very gratifying. But it takes much more work on your part to prepare a student orchestra. Well, it takes it takes both technical and musical work. Right. I mean, there we have five orchestras here that are of different levels, and, and each one has to be approached somewhat differently. Talk to us about approaching a work that you've assigned an orchestra here at the university. What do you have to do to prepare the students for the performance? Okay. From a strictly orchestral view, with a younger orchestra, you might want to work with the strings. You might want to know what kind of sound you want, what kind of bowings you want, where you want it played on the bow, what kind of color you want. With the winds who are playing, let's say, for the first time together or they're only getting together to play for one semester... Uh, then you work on balancing chords. You will work on intonation. But this will all be done in the process of developing an interpretation. And you can get all that done in a series of rehearsals. Uh, you can. I mean, as most conductors, I feel the more rehearsal, the better. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, how, how many rehearsals would you normally have to prepare f 
let's say, a concert. I uh, we do eight two-hour rehearsals. And if the program is not overly long with two or three overly complicated pieces, we could generally do a, a, a standard masterwork and maybe a difficult contemporary piece or a concerto and an overture within that time and get the job done reasonably well. Let's go back a bit. Uh, you were born in New York, right. I understand. Can you talk a little bit about your early years when music came to have some importance uh, in your life? Sure. I was born in Manhattan, and when I was a child, of, I think I was four or five, my grandfather bought me for my birthday a collection of 78 music, classical, uh, classical selections for kids. It had they danced the March of the Marionettes from Gounod. I mean, I don't even remember all the pieces, but I remember falling in love with the, with this collection, and I would listen to it incessantly. And then I found out that WQXR was the main classical music station in New York, and I had the radio going on from morning <laughs> to night. I would do my homework to the radio, listening to the classical music on the radio. I listened to it first thing in the morning, so I got to know. Uh, at least I had in my ear a broad spectrum of of classical music, even by the time I finished elementary school. And I studied piano. First, we didn't have a piano, so my father put me on the accordion for a while. And then we did get a piano, and I started piano lessons when I was about six or seven. And during my uh, early school years, I studied horn. I played horn in, in the, in, through high school in the, in the band. I studied violin for three or four years. And... Uh, I really loved classical music from as, for as long as I could remember. I share that love because <laughs> uh, I started listening very early. Uh, th- these early lessons were with a private teacher? Or? Yes, I had a local teacher, an old Viennese uh, lady who was a very cultured pianist. And my parents brought me to a well-known duo team who taught in the neighborhood. They were named with Stecker and Horowitz. And then they brought me to a person when I was, uh, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade, who was uh, one of the most important musical influence on my life. Uh, He was a pianist. His name was Joseph Fiedelman. He was a student of Heinrich Neuhaus, who had taught Gilles, Richter, and Ashkenazi. He was a tremendous taskmaster. He was a, a monumental musician and teacher. And he taught me basically everything... Oh, no, he didn't teach me everything, but he taught me so much of what I, I, mm-hmm. I needed for this profession, whether it was as a pianist or as a conductor. Where did things turn from the piano to conducting? Oh, there were two incidents. <laughs> and they were, I, both turned, I could turn to conducting to some degree by default. I had been practicing Chopin etudes at the age of 13, 14, four hours a day, and, and my teacher brought me to an Ashkenazi recital at Carnegie Hall, where he played all the Chopin etudes, Opus 10 and 25, in one evening. And he played it with such ease. And, and I mean, I don't think he even... He, he didn't break a sweat the entire evening. And uh, I realized that I could play, practice piano 25 hours a day, and it would never get anywhere close to what he was doing. And actually, I, I spent... The, I was up till 3 in the morning, I think, crying, saying, this is never going to work, this is never going to work. That was one thing that made me decide against the p- piano. 
By the way, th- about five years ago, I was at Heathrow Airport, and I saw Ashkenazi with his wife, uh-huh. and I went up and introduced myself. And he knew who I was, actually. And I told him the story how his recital of Carnegie Hall changed my life. And he said, I still think you made the right decision. You're, you're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the other reason, uh, I, I loved the French horn, but I wasn't a very good French horn player. And I remember we had to, I, had a, I was playing first horn in the wind ensemble of our uh, high school uh, band. And we were going to the New York State Festival and I had a big horn solo in the first suite for Bad by Gustav Holtz. And I really cracked about four times during the solo. Yeah. And all the kids in the band came up to me and said, you've ruined it for us. And I, I lost <laughs> oh. my nerve. I asked the band director to put me down to fourth horn. And But the real reason I became a conductor was actually it happened at a ski vacation in Lake Placid. We used to go every... December up to Lake Placid skiing and we stayed at the lodge of an old Hungarian doctor and I think I was 16 at the time and staying at during that uh, Christmas period was Laszlo Halas. Laszlo Halas was the founder of New York City Opera. He had studied in Hungary. He was a piano student and composition student of Bartok. He studied with Kodai. Toscanini brought him to the United States as an assistant after he assisted Toscanini and Bruno Walter at the Salzburg Festival. He met me, heard me play the piano, said, why don't you study conducting with me? He lived on Long Island, about a half an hour from my home. And so in my junior year of high school, I began studying with Halas. Wow. That's a, that's a coup for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. And then you also studied with Max Rudolph. And then I studied with Max Rudolph at Curtis Institute and also spent uh, two summers studying with Swarovski in a summer f- festival in Austria. In, it was called uh, – in Ossiach, it was called the Corinthian Summer. And while I was at Curtis, during my first year at Curtis, Halash calls me on the phone and says, Arthur, my former assistant, Christoph von Dochnani, needs an assistant – in Frankfurt. I was 21 at the time. And he sent me to New York to meet Dohnani, who was at the time. I went to see him at the Essex House on Central Park West in New York. And I told Mr. von Dohnani, I'm sorry, you know, I'm very flattered that you're interested, but I only know three operas. I was 21. And it was, what do you know? He said, well, I know the magic flute, I know Traviata, and I know Bohème. You know the magic flute? Yes, I said, yes. I didn't have the score with me. He said, do you know the Monocetos aria? So I said, yes. So I said, sit down. You know, I went to the piano. And each verse of the Monocetos aria takes about 45 seconds. So I played 45 seconds, and it went very well. And then he said, would you like to come to Frankfurt next year? And then I thought to myself, this is such an easy career. I have to do a 45-second audition. I landed a job in Frankfurt as an assistant <laughs> to Dohnani. It was the easiest job I ever got. <laughs> it was never as easy after that. And uh, I went to Frankfurt at the age of 21, actually. And that was quite an experience. He actually let me conduct my first season. and But they had a repertoire of 35 to 40 operas, and I was up until 3 o'clock in the morning, five days a week, learning Salome. During my period there, I assisted him on Moses and Aaron. I assisted him on Erfartung, Wozzeck, Parsifal, 
also is all, Carmen. All the easy well, also Carmen <laughs> Tosca, Marriage of Figaro. But that was a very intensive period, and I, I really was working sixteen hours a day. Let's pause for a few minutes and turn to some music. Right. Uh, what would you like to feature first uh, during our profile hour? I would like to play an example of from one of the from my. I recorded all the Martinu symphonies, and perhaps we could listen to the slow movement of uh, the third symphony. I think this music has tremendous depth. I'm I'm a big fan of Martinu. The orchestra is. The National Orchestra of the Ukraine. It was the main orchestra in Kiev. Third, uh, the second movement. The second movement of the Third Symphony of Frank Martineau, conducted by our guest Arthur Fagan. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. You were speaking before the music uh, on how you had to learn repertoire very quickly in Frankfurt, having been given a job as a very youthful conductor. I understand you have about 75 operas in your repertoire now. Maybe 80 by now. <laughs> Maybe 80 by now, all right. What does that mean oh, when you say that you have an opera in your repertoire. Well, when I say that, it means that I've conducted it in performance. Okay. And how much, how well do you know it? How much do you have to bone up on it if you come back to it? I would say that there's some operas that I've conducted many, many times. A lot of the uh, Verdi repertoire, Puccini repertoire, Mozart repertory that I, I would need just a day or two to bone up on it. I mean, I'd like to have more time to to bone up on it in depth, sure. but I could I could conduct probably 50 or 60 tomorrow if you asked me. I would say the difficult contemporary operas, which I have done, like Lear by Raimon or Vincent, which we did here uh, two years ago, uh, those operas I would need. I would need more time to, to review. Let's take uh, Vincent. Uh, how did you approach this new work? What did you do to get yourself into it 
and then prepare yourself to work with the performers? I mean, one of the first things I do is, as in a case like Vincent where you don't even have recording, I'll first go through the piano vocal score. I'll read the libretto. Then I'll study the orchestral score. Then I'll spend a lot of time speaking to the composer, <laughs> who'll describe what motivated him to write a certain passage a certain way, his compositional techniques, and and so forth. And you know, I spent a, I spent a lot of time, for instance, in preparing Vincent. I had been working on it. I would say for a, for a good year, at least a year, perhaps a year and a half. And it took quite a while, and then I start coaching singers on it. And and after a while, you know, one one assimilates a piece like that. It's it's a strange thing with me. I'm a very fast sight reader, but I'm a slow learner. And I do many of my concerts by memory, but it takes me many, many, many hours. From the time that I could just do a quick superficial reading to the time that I really internalize the piece... It's it's a it's a long road for me, really, and I do invest the hours into it. I'm always amazed that anyone can stand up there and and keep control of all the instruments of the the soloist, the chorus. When you're dealing with opera, that's uh, an amazing feat. Well, I think the secret to dealing with the stage is to know the vocal line inside out, to sing it inwardly. Because um, I think the secret to opera conducting, in addition with orchestral conducting aside, is that if a singer or a chorus feels that you are singing with them and breathing with them, you sort of get on, let's say you get on their beam and they get on your beam. And when you feel that there is this real flow between the conductor and the singer, and the, they feel that you're with them, you can stretch a phrase because mm. you can feel, you can sense how much breath they have. You can guide a singer much better if you're singing with them. I think there are conductors who are able to get it together with a singer, but it's like two parallel universes somehow coming together. But it, it never quite gels Unless you are really, you know, during an opera, no matter what I'm doing with the orchestra, the vocal line is still going on inside of me. Well, Toscanini did it orally. One, yes. one could hear it sometimes on <laughs> his recordings. Yes. But that's that's interesting, that you're really singing along all the time. You're I mean, I may not be... I, I try to keep it... Inside, oh, sure. sometimes yeah. it'll come out in a big in a big climax. You, you hear you hear many conductors grunting. Zell would breathe heavily and grunt, and Toscanini, of course, but many many conductors do. It can be distracting for the orchestra. I try yeah. I try to uh, make sure it doesn't come out too much. What does it take then for the singers and the orchestra members, going back to Vincent, the the new opera? When you start to work with them, what are their their difficulties, their problems that you have to solve? Well, uh, I mean, there are many difficult. It's was it's for one, many passages are technically very difficult, rhythmically very difficult, 
you have to take uh, the, the orchestra textures apart. You have to let uh, you have to rehearse instruments that play the same texture alone once. Know that they have to play. Let's say that the bassoon has to play with the cello or so forth. Take the uh, and each 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 group has a different uh, rhythmic figure, and then you put it together. And then you have to make sure that it's balanced so that it doesn't, you know, which which figure is more important, which is secondary. How do you balance the whole against the stage so you don't right. overpower the stage? There's a lot of, I wouldn't call it wheeling and dealing, but uh, calibration and fine-tuning is necessary to get it to work. And then to capture the emotional impact of the music yes. at the same time yes. and, and the character of the music. And to convey that to the students, uh, yes. to the players. And it gets very complex in a, in a piece like Vincent. But it's in, in a different way, it's even more complex even in a piece like Mozart where you're walking on a tightrope and you know you have certain – you can't overstep any certain boundaries, but you still have to make it work, make it sound completely natural. And you speak about balances. Uh, I think uh, in Puccini and Verdi – for instance, when you have those climaxes and the orchestra really has to be passionate, but the singers also have to be passionate, do you find it difficult sometimes to create a balance so that the singer is heard sufficiently, but you're not making an audience feel that the orchestra is being held back? Well, that's uh, that's also a very fine line between... Yeah sort of emasculating the orchestra so that you lose the dramatic impact just for the sake of hearing the singer or going for a climax and then completely obliterating the singer. That's uh, that's that's a difficult decision that has to be made. I find in Verdi, Verdi writes very well for the voices. I mean, he if you have a normal-sized bar, Verdi baritone or soprano, he writes in such a way that you almost never overpower a singer in Verdi. Puccini, however, can get quite thick. And the greatest danger is with Richard Strauss, I find. <laughs> I there you have the greatest danger. Even Wagner, in 80% of the vocal writing, he's not overpowering the singers. It's possible to do. What's difficult when you've got people who are used to playing, or, uh, let's say, orchestral wind players, the most important thing in a Strauss opera is to get the woodwinds to be able to play very, very soft uh, when you've got people singing on stage. And they have to play a piano and a forte when they're singing, which is much softer than they, what they would play uh, on a concert podium. And it's very hard to get people who are used to a certain level of forte playing, let's say, or is piano playing in a Strauss tone poem, to change when they're playing, uh, mm. uh, you know, Frau Schatten or so or It's a or very different story. animal. It is. One from the other. And we don't think of that so much in the audience. It's just the big orchestra. It's Strauss. And then there, and then there are certain moments where it's important that a climax really does happen. And there are certain moments where you just have to say, well, we'll sacrifice hearing the singer 100%. Mm -hmm. Strauss wrote himself that if you understand 50% of what a singer says on stage during an opera performance... You're doing quite well. <laughs> do you have, uh, in the operatic repertoire, do you have favorites? I have favorite operas. Such as? Okay. My favorite operas, uh, let's say, 
My favorite Mozart opera is probably The Marriage of Figaro. I can't explain why. I find the most exquisite music in, in Cosi. However, Cosi is structurally doesn't hang together as well. And, and Cosi is one opera where traditionally cuts are made in some of the finales on ensembles because it just makes the opera work better. I mean, Don Giovanni is a phenomenal opera. There's no question about it. But somehow... For me, Marriage of Figaro, especially the first two acts, they just they have this incredible flow, and I love. Oh, I also love the fourth act finale of Figaro. I find mm. the resolution of the conflict between the Count and the Countess to be one of the most spectacular moments in all of music. And in Verdi, uh, I'd say my favorite opera is Don Carlo, which I've done it's many times. Yeah. It has uh, it has a dimension that many of the operas don't have. I love Falstaff, completely different. I mean, it's hard yes. to believe it was written by the same composer. And believe it or not, of the early operas, one that I adore musically is Ernani because I find the music so fresh and so inspiring. I'm not saying it's a great opera in terms of the plot, or neither, nor is the Trovatore for that matter. Great music. It's just, you know, I love Wozzeck. It's one of my favorite operas. There are many uh, sections of Rosenkavlier that I love. I love the end of Rosenkavlier, the final trio. I love the presentation of the rose. I love uh, the Marshallin's monologue. I love uh, a lot of the ring. A lot of the ring I don't love, but uh, <laughs> when I think of the end of Götterdämmerung, it's unbelievable, the last scene of Siegfried, uh, Wotan's farewell from Valkyra. These are phenomenal moments, although I can't say... That the ring as a whole is something that I that 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 I love because I find so few of the characters in the ring to be sympathetic. Mm. <laughs> that can be an important factor. I mean, when we go to the theater, we respond to characters that are sympathetic, and I guess you feel that way, perhaps, with an operatic uh, story. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, I mean, you know, Wotan has his very good and very bad sides. But at the end, when when Fritz to sleep at the end of Valkyrie, I mean, this is the most deeply touching music you could imagine. I have tears in my eyes when when, yeah. when I when I'm doing that that scene. It's it is so moving. The end of Götterdämmerung is one of the most incredible moving pieces of music, stuff. and you know. No matter how you know, I've done I've done uh, quite a number of ring performances. No matter how tired I may be, when you get to the final scene of Götter Deverung, you don't feel tired at all. You don't feel tired at all at the end of Siegfried. You don't feel tired at all at the end of Valkyrie. The music is so incredibly uplifting. Hard to reconcile with the personality of Wagner. Have to, well, that I have to say. Yes. <laughs> yes. I recently when Anthony Tomasini in the New York Times decided on who the 10 greatest composers, and he ranked Verdi and Wagner 7th and 8th. And he said he ranked Verdi ahead of Wagner because he was a nicer man. (laughs) 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 Uh, Are there any uh, pieces in the orchestral repertoire that have particular meaning for you? If I had to pick a composer that I enjoy conducting the most... I would have to be Brahms. Mm. And why? 
I can't quite explain it, but I mean, I feel Beethoven is, is phenomenal, but it's so, so difficult to bring off. Brahms, for me, has tremendous depth. The way the music is constructed, the way it, the way it hangs together, it is structurally so strong and emotionally so rich and strong. It combines, you know, I guess what Nietzsche would call the Apollonian and Dionysian elements all in one. And for that reason, it is the most gratifying music for me to conduct. I mean, I love Bruckner, I love I love Mahler, I love I adore Mozart, you know. But Brahms. But somehow, if I had to pick the pieces that I would like to do them, and I had to do to the exclusion of other other works, I would probably pick Brahms. Let's go back to some music. You brought another favorite. Tell us about it. Oh, I brought in. I brought a CD that I recorded with Kasarova, well-known mezzo, and uh, Flores at the beginning of his career before uh-huh. he was famous. <laughs> and uh, there are quite a few selections on it. I like the Semiramide aria okay. uh, because it's got such a beautiful long orchestral introduction that you don't often get in Rossini operas. We have heard an aria from Rossini's Semiramide, which Arthur Fagan conducted, and Vasilina Kasarova uh, was the soloist. Uh, wanted to change direction and talk a little bit about your teaching individual young conductors. What are you looking for when you take on a student? who wants to become a conductor? That's an interesting question, and it's an important question. We are very selective at the Jacob School of Music. We get about 60, 70 tapes. We invite a maximum of 10 or 12 to audition, and we take maybe two or three every year. So the level is very, very high. What I'm basically, and I think Mr. Efron, what we have been looking for would be the ability to communicate to an orchestra, a high level of musicality, and a certain temperament and inner fire, I would, if, I, if I had to pick three qualities. Sometimes we get people who are phenomenally gifted, have phenomenal hands, but we sense that their level... This is a graduate program, by the way. Mm-hmm. We do not teach undergraduates. But their level of musical training or what they have to say about a piece is really 
or maybe there's real musical flaws we see sometimes. We won't take somebody like that. There has to be three components that are really working. And we also have to have the feeling that, uh, you know, we interview these people, that they are also open and that there's a possibility of development. Because sometimes you get somebody who is very well trained but very much in a groove mm-hmm. and you feel like you won't be able to do too much with that person. And in those cases, we'd rather invest time in somebody who we feel has greater development potential. Uh, a willingness to learn, too. Yeah. yeah. This matter of communication, you know, we see you, you're back. What is involved in communicating? How do you communicate to musicians in front of you? Uh, I mean, we see the baton, we see the hands, we know that the face is working, that the torso is doing things, but what's involved uh, otherwise? I mean, I, I, I suspect there's a mental and spiritual uh, component to all this. There is, and there's even a telepathic component to it, to communicate feelings, colors, musical colors, ideas, without opening your mouth. And some people are able to do that, and other people are not able to do that. And perhaps some people, in some people it can be developed, and other people it cannot be developed. I mean, the traditional set of gestures that you learn in a basic conducting course, it's like, you know, being a policeman, say, you know, traffic to the left, you go to the right now. But what you see in a conductor's hands is basically the tip of the iceberg because everything is coming from inside. It's it's how you feel a piece viscerally, how you've analyzed it intellectually, what emotions it's creating in you that you're trying to communicate to the orchestra and then to the public. You, we talk about people, musicians being centered or not centered. I mean, that plays a great role in, in, in learning how to conduct, how to how to be able to center yourself so that uh, you develop your ability ability to communicate whatever you have because if you're not centered, you cannot communicate no matter what kind of hands you have, what how, how brilliant you are with a stick. We talk about those aspects. I think the basic semaphoric signals that we learn as conductors are fine at the beginning. I mean, you have to have, a, you have, to have something to start out with. But from there on, it becomes much more involved. And when we see young conductors, some are have wonderful hands, but somehow we feel that there's some kind of block between them and the orchestra. You feel that there's not the flow. You try to establish the flow between what they want to say and what they're communicating to the orchestra. It's, it's a very fascinating field. I, I find teaching conducting to be so interesting. And half of, it is, half of it is kind of psychology. What do you think the future is for young conductors? Uh, is there a lot of opportunity? or I mean, the opportunities are diminishing. But the emphasis in the profession today is on very young conductors. I mean, unfortunately, learning how to be a really, really fine conductor is a very long developmental process that takes sometimes 15, 20 years. You cannot always tell... You've got two conductors. One, if one has, if one has a lot of very strong technique, good memory, 
and a lot of temperament and the right look, they can be very successful at an early age. It doesn't mean that 15 years down the road they'll be better than the guy who was a, a you know, sort of a... So I guess it's like the turtle and the hare, but there's some people who are much slower developers, and it's important for us to be able to recognize people who have this innate gift that might take longer to develop and also work with them. But the emphasis in the business is on very young conductors. There is no system in the United States. I mean, there are auditions for um, assistant conductors. I think the best thing for a or- person who wants to have an orchestral career in the United States is to get an assistantship with a major orchestra where you have high-level soloists, high-level conductors coming in, and to be able to work with a young orchestra and to have the actual practical training at the same time. I don't think it's good for a young conductor not to be in a major city or to be in a provincial town with a bad orchestra because you don't have enough art, uh, you're not getting enough um, artistic inspiration. Mm-hmm. I did it through the traditional old German way of going through the opera houses and uh, that has its advantages, has its disadvantages too. Because uh, in those houses, unless you're because so many of those pe- people who went went through those that system started out as pianists, and so the emphasis is not so much on great orchestral playing all the time. It's a different emphasis. Also in Germany, you're far removed from a real, I would say, a really beautiful Italian style. It's hard to do a a good Donizetti or Bellini with a middle level German orchestra because they just don't you know they only hear is Baradi and I hear here's hurdy gurdy music. And it's the idea is to make it as beautiful yes. as possible, to make it fit dramatically what the vocal line is doing. All the phrasing. <laughs> but they're not sensitized yeah. to that. I, mean, I hate to say it, but our hour is up. Uh, we've been speaking with Arthur Fagan, and I thank you, Arthur. Thank you. And I thank you for being with us, and this is Peter Jacoby. It's Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in May of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.